Welcome to the Theory and Practice Podcast, hosted by me, Anna Cordera. I created Theory and Practice after growing tired of the exclusive and perfectionist nature of wellness conversations. And so my hope is that with this platform and this podcast, we inspire you, the next generation of changemakers, to prioritize self-discovery before self-improvement. So every week, we'll bring you the ideas and resources to help you get to know yourself better through conversations with young emerging thought leaders and established trailblazers and the ever so often solo episode with just me sharing a book or idea that has helped me in my journey of self-discovery. So thanks so much for listening and for joining along. Hi, everyone. Today's conversation is with my close friend, Rob Rush. Rob Rush is a first-generation college graduate from Harvard University who created the platform Become What You Can't See which is a community to amplify the voices of first-generation graduates and cultivate a community and network that makes this journey easier for each generation going forward. Rob is well on his way to Stanford's Graduate School of Business as a bold fellow starting his first year in September. And in this conversation, we talk about how Robert's background growing up in the South Bronx, being part of Prep for Prep, a program that provides better opportunities for kids of color in low-income communities, and how an elementary school suspension meeting led him to consider Harvard as a possibility. We also talk about the decision-making process in school, how to consider a major, whether to pursue an MBA. We get into all the nitty-gritty of education. And we also talk about mentorship, how to find mentors, how to keep them, and Rob's advice for those looking to establish mentors right after school. And then lastly, we also talk about Rob's experience opening up about mental well-being with his friends, with other men, and how men can follow suit and also open up with each other. So we have a really interesting conversation overall focused on education, mentorship, career opportunities, etc., and also mental health and mental well-being and vulnerability among men. So let's get into it. Well, Rob, as I said, thank you again for coming on the Theory and Practice podcast. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. And thank you for coming all the way to my apartment to film this. Oh, man, I love the West Village. I can never can never keep me here uh, too short. So Love it. Love it. So let's get into this. I want to start first and foremost by having you share about who you are. Mm-hmm. What's your story? Give the listeners a little bit of intel of who Rob Rush is. Yeah, so I'll, I'll start like presently and then go backwards. Uh, Rob Rush, pleasure to meet everybody who's listening. Per gender pronouns are he, him, his. Uh, currently, I am an incoming MBA one at Stanford University. Uh, we'll be moving in September. Really excited. Uh, I'm wrapping up my current position at Correlation One, where I help run a suite of data science training programs for folks who are looking to break into the industry. It's really awesome. But before I was doing all of these things, I was born and raised in the South Bronx, uh, a little north of here in New York. Uh, been here my entire life. I'm a New Yorker at heart uh, and had a few experiences that I'll talk a little bit about that have shaped the way that I view the world, speak about the world and interact with it. Uh, first is being born in the South Bronx, but throughout my early education, I moved around quite a bit. 
uh, whether it was my mom moving me to a better school because the schools that I was at weren't up to par to her standards or maybe us moving uh, to a different place in the neighborhood and then that forcing me to, uh, you know, adapt and change. I got really used to change as like my constant and always seeing different environments, I think taught me a lot about how to retain pieces of places that I've been uh, and find connections between those places uh, as I continue to move. And I think that really served me well uh, after uh, in eighth grade, I received due to just like my academic performance and just investment from some of my teachers uh, at my school, uh, an opportunity to uh, attend this program called Prep for Prep, which looks for bright young uh, kids of color from low-income neighborhoods, particularly in New York City, provides them better opportunities uh, in school, whether it's private schools in the city or going to boarding school. And you know, through that program, I was able to uh, work uh, my way to earning a scholarship at Phillips Academy Andover. So went from the South Bronx living in New York to Massachusetts and suburbs and just a whole different lifestyle right. in total um, at a very young age and had to really wrestle with the duality of uh, the two lives that um, I was now living, like whether being in the Bronx, this urban metropolis, and then going to Andover, which was a largely wealthy, well, well-resourced, um, and just different uh, institution than what I was used to. Uh, so I think the, the life that I have lived prior to those years in terms of moving around, uh, having to get to know different people and places, which helped me build resilience, endurance, and then ultimately thriving while I was at Andover. And I think you just spoke to exactly what the self-discovery journey is, mm. especially when you're, you're young. And um, I'm really grateful that you shared all of that because we're going to go dive deeper into each of these topics. Mm -hmm. But I want to start first and foremost with um, discussing a little bit more about your identity mm. um, as a first gen student at Harvard. Mm -hmm. Clearly that, you know, has had a big impact in the way that you have built your life at this point to the point that you even created a platform called mm -hmm. Become What You Can't See that's designed to amplify, support, and empower first-gen college graduates mm -hmm. and their stories. Tell us more about, you know, your story and tell us about why you wanted to create this community. Yeah, so the impetus behind Become What You Can't See are really, really two uh, key moments. The first was uh, when I arrived at Harvard, uh, I, I quickly understood that though there were tons of folks who you know looked like me and had similar experiences that i did whether they also identified as black or african-american or had gone to boarding school and things of that nature uh there wasn't a same population of folks that really experienced what it was like to be the first in their family to be uh attending uh college such as harvard or four-year degree and uh there's a concept called social capital which is really important to how people are able to navigate society that it's just a part of everybody's lived life, right? When I was growing up in the Bronx, there was a certain form of social capital that allowed me to navigate that space. And going to college, right, what are, what are forms of social capital that help people navigate those spaces is having family, friends, uh, members who have gone to that school or schools before to really help them navigate uh, their way through the nuances and the unspoken rules of, of, of college life, whether it's going to the teacher's uh, office hours or having 
uh, mutual connections with family friends who also did the same thing, right? A lot of things I was discovering for the first time on my own really found a pretty isolating experience when it came to trying to navigate the spaces. I couldn't talk to my family much about what I was going through because they, they though they love me and they always would support me, they didn't have the practical knowledge to really help me navigate the, the situations I was, I was dealing with. And even at school and even into the workplace, which is really where I think a lot of this even, even plays into, was I spent a lot of time having to explain myself rather than participating in conversation. And just recognizing that and recognizing that if I'm experiencing this, there's tons of other folks who are also feeling the same thing, that I wanted to create something that just acknowledged that, just that feeling, mm -hmm. right? Just that uncomfortability, but also acknowledging the, the beauty in it as well, because you get to be a pioneer. You get to be someone who sets a path forward, who then others can follow behind. And you also get to be a part of a novel experience that both recognizes both of the places that you are, whether you're first gen from a different country and now you're in America or you're first gen um, in college, you get to recognize both parts of that um, uniquely within you. And I thought that was beautiful and worth uh, amplifying and creating a place to celebrate it. Wow, that's really beautiful. There's you clearly have a lot of passion around that. Hmm. So why is it important to you and for, for everyone also to to amplify and learn more of stories of first-generation college graduates? Really, the first-gen college graduate story is the American story, right? It is the American dream, right? You are, most folks who come from this background are largely from working or lower income classes. Many of them are from marginalized communities, uh, whether it's uh, immigration backgrounds or from historically uh, underrepresented groups or historically marginalized groups like African-Americans and Latinx, um, Asian, things of that nature. And many of them are coming from families who you know, are, are striving to make something better of themselves. And education has always been a hallmark in terms of success, right, like achieving success, but it is also the most effective pathway at this time for social mobility. So for folks who come from families who never had a chance to go to college because either they sacrifice for their family today so that their kids can have a better life or they just never had the opportunity or were discriminated against and, and couldn't do it, it, it's the achievement of a collective dream. Right. Mm -hmm. It's the achievement of a collective ambition, and it represents so much more than just the individuals who are going through it. And I believe the more that we have folks who have this experience in college, the greater college campuses become because they begin to include more experiences that otherwise wouldn't, rep wouldn't be represented there. I, I really think it's, super, it's special because it's an inclusive story that everybody, even if you have privilege and even mm -hmm. if you've been to college before, you can identify with the struggle of not knowing something and trying to figure it out, right? But it's coming from a basis that makes sure that nobody's actually left out of the narrative versus um, having to include more people in. Mm, that's, really, that's, that's really powerful. I love the inclusivity lens that you spoke to. I think that's so important and the analogy to the American dream. I also want to share with the audience here about an article that you wrote mm. for Plavity. Um, uh -oh. I think it was, I think, I don't know, were you in at Harvard already when you had written it? Yeah, so this, if, if it's the article that I, I think you're referring to, um, it's probably the one, for, is it the one from, like, just talking about, like, 18 and then 
coming Harvard and stuff about like Miss Polito. Yeah, this was during my graduate. Yeah, this is right, like right before I graduated. So yes. I was still a student, but on my way um, out. Yeah. Yeah. So for those, uh, we'll link it in the show notes. But for those uh, who haven't read it, this is an article that Rob published on Bab- Blavity mm-hmm. about how hearing the word Harvard from his elementary school administrator opened up a world of opportunities. And I really, really love this story because you were in elementary school Mm -hmm. and that is when the seed was planted for you to consider Harvard as an option that you had for higher education. Mm. And you, we, I don't know, maybe some people think like elementary school, like how are you supposed to know where you want to go to school or Mm. all that? But in reality, childhood is the most important time for someone to get planted the right seed so they can, you know, think about the world of opportunities mm-hmm. out there. And so you wrote um, to me, Miss Polito, my guidance counselor, was telling me that I could be more than, than an 18-year-old kid from the South Bronx, mm-hmm. that I had more life to give and more to give life. And this was coming out of a conversation that you had with her after you were called for like a disciplinary hearing. Yeah, yeah. So, so share more about that specific story. And, and, you know, what kind of like what came to your mind when you heard the word Harvard? For sure. Uh, yeah. So before I was this, uh, you know, well, pristine person, <laughs> um, we all have our, we all have growth. Right. And uh, I'll talk a little bit about this in the context of also how particularly like young um, kids of color are, are treated in, in school systems. So when I was in fourth grade, I was uh, on my way to uh, an in-school suspension uh, due to behavioral issues, whether it was disrupting class or talking back to the teacher, things of that nature. Mind you, let me let me let me talk about a little bit about how I was raised. My mother raised me to be curious and to always ask questions when I didn't understand something. Now, I will admit that there were moments where I probably could have shut my mouth more, but I think my ability to be opinionated and like many kids who have this curiosity is often stifled in certain 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 places. Mm-hmm. And I believe that at the time I was experiencing a little bit of that um, where as a young, bright kid of color who was asking questions and being curious, we were often seen as threatening to certain power positions and structures. I'll pause there and kind of let y'all marinate on that. But in terms of the story, I, I met Miss Polito as a kind of like last resort, if it, if you will. She was a guidance counselor uh, in our school. And, you know, she means a lot to a lot of people. Um, but ho- and hopefully you'll get this through my story. When I sat down with her to talk about what was going on, this was one of the first conversations in that environment where you get a lot of things dictated towards you where someone sat and gave me the floor to speak. And I told her a lot about the experiences that I was in the room for, and she listened. She let me say my piece. She allowed me to be vulnerable and, you know, process exactly what it is that um, I was going through. And I remember she asked me, the the response that she asked me was, Rob, what do you want to be? Right? Like, what, what do you want to be? And it's a heavy question, I think, to ask someone super young. But we How all, old were you? I was, I, this was like fourth, fifth grade. I had to be no older than like nine or ten. You know what I mean? Um, it's a heavy question to really ask kids. But we ask kids that all the time, right? We ask them like, what is your dream job? You know, things of that nature. And at the time, you know, for me, my goal was really just to turn 18. And it sounds crazy. It sounds like, oh, my God, like, like 
kind of kind of morbid, but the reality is that coming from where I grew up, uh, there isn't there wasn't a lot of uh, examples of longevity in terms of how we should picture our futures, right? Just because of the conditions that were brought about through systemic oppression and discrimination within the neighborhood that I grew up in. We have the highest rates of asthma, obesity, uh, heart disease, highest rates of poverty, things of these things in nature, highest rates of food deserts. So there's just so much that are that is built into the communities that I represent and that I come from that make it very difficult to feasibly plan for the future, right? Because you're worried about surviving today. So for me, it was like, I just want to see 18. I wanted to focus on like seeing more life. And, and what did she say? And what she said to me was she said that, you know, Robert, you can be more than just 18. You can even go to Harvard one day if you just applied yourself and recognize the potential that you have. Now, that was the first time I ever heard the word Harvard. And, you know, to be honest, I like I like got it. Let me let me stop. It's not the first time that I heard the word Harvard, but I guess it's the first time I heard it in this context, right? Like in this context of saying like you can you can have that as part of you, exactly. as like, part of your I can identity, have it as part of my identity, right? And like I never knew what Harvard looked like, but I always knew people talked about it when they talked about like important things or like when they wanted to say you're you're going to be a a bright kid or you have a lot of potential. Like Harvard as a word, right? Harvard as an institution and not as a school represents. Um, success, prestige, and 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 potential in the way that we use it, right? And words have a lot of meaning. So when she told me that I can I can go to Harvard one day, it it really I didn't necessarily like immediately believe it and be like, what is she talking about? Like I was like, she just like, what planted the seed. But she planted the seed, right? It made me think a little bit more about future, future, right? More futuritively about myself and thinking more about, hmm, okay. What does it look like to have goals bigger than just survival, frankly speaking, um, and having access to wanting to do more in life than just uh, navigate the day to day? I love I, again, love that story. And two things that stand out from it. Number one is that sometimes it's really helpful when an external party gives you the permission mm -hmm. to, to, to see an opportunity that you don't think maybe that you deserve or that you didn't even think was possible to have in your life. Mm -hmm. And when they do that, when they give you that permission, it's like they open a door for you. They open a door for you for possibilities that are far beyond your wildest dreams. Mm -hmm. The second uh, thing I like about that story is that, again, she took the word Harvard or prestigious college, whatever undertones the word Harvard has and attached it to you, mm -hmm. to your identity. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, I mean, it's how, again, James Clear talks about when you're trying to form a habit or a hobby, you should be speaking like, I am a runner versus, you know, I run. Exactly. Or I am an entrepreneur versus I'm building a business to embody that identity and to really believe that it's part of you. And it's kind of like the same idea here that Miss Plato had is like Harvard, Rob. Like there are, there is a connection there that can be opened and explored if you're willing to explore it. Agreed. Agreed. And I think what's so powerful about that is, you know, I talked a little bit about social capital earlier. Uh, when, when you grow up in a family where going to college is an expectation, you, you have that passively, right? You have that expectation passively uh, from a young age that this is something you're supposed to do or that you're going to do. And when you make the association and between something like Harvard and something and, and someone like me, 
you allow for there to be more acceptance of that reality, um, of it becoming more normative to have, you know, young kids from the South Bronx attending a school like Harvard. Right now, it's, it's a little bit of an anomaly statistically, but the goal is for it to feel normal, right? Ideally, we want it to feel normal. When you just give more possibility, when you associate uh, folks and you associate yourself with uh, ideas that otherwise you thought were not possible, it makes them more feasible for you to accept them and accept yes. that reality itself. Yes, yes, 100%. And thank, thank goodness for Ms. Polito. Yeah, shout out to Ms. Polito. Uh, you know, we actually plan to, <laughs> plan to get dinner with her before I go to uh, Stanford. So, yep, she's still around. She's here. That's uh, amazing. She's great. Ms. Polito, if you see this, you know I love you. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Now you're a few weeks away from heading to Stanford. I know. Crazy. And I'm so proud of you, Rob. Oh, thank you. Because, you know, I'm not one bit surprised, but I'm so proud of you because of the self-discovery journey that you went through to, one, decide to apply to get an MBA, Mm. and two, to decide which school to go to. And when you were going through this process, you were very, very... We, we spoke mm-hmm. and you were very intentional with, you know, exploring the different opportunities from each school, mm-hmm. the different student bodies and the different potential experiences that you could have. And beyond that, I just want to dive a little bit into why you're choosing to get an MBA. Yeah, I think education has always been important to you, but I want to understand why you are pursuing this. And then also for those who are looking to get an MBA or even for those who are looking to apply to college, what advice do you have for those looking at access to higher education? I, I asked like three questions yeah, in that. Like so questions in one. <laughs> where I'll, do you I'll, start? I'll tackle, I'll tackle the, the why MBA first. Okay. And then that'll dovetail into uh, kind of more advice or just like giving my journey and hopefully it, it helps someone on their, on their own. Um, the why MBA is a really great question because, you know, to the extent, right, when you think about what we conjure up as the as the collective expectation for, for folks, right? You go to school, you get your high school diploma, you go to college, you get a job, right? I think that's changing a lot um, today. You know, there's so much more fluidity with which uh, folks can choose their life path, but historically that has been the expectation. So, you know, for a lot of our lives, it's already kind of mapped out for us what to do, right? We are supposed to get the good grades so we can go to uh, the next the next step. Or, you know, if you're a freshman in college, it's like you can fail one class. It's like I'm still going to be a sophomore, hopefully, ideally, right, unless you fail a bunch of them. Um, but there is always something lined up for you. Once you graduate from undergrad and you're working, it's really upon you now to choose what you do next and that can come with a lot of anxiety and a lot of 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 stress because you don't want to make the wrong decision and you want to make sure that the decisions you're making don't regress the progress that you've made right you don't want to lose the things that you've already built and for me as someone who you know first gen also grew up low income and where financial security is super important me thinking about making decisions i always think about the financial implications and whether that will allow me to achieve the collective goals of generational wealth for my family and also um, expectations, right, as well. Like, what does it mean for me to pursue something else that is um, a want but may not necessarily be 
what people would have deemed something that I would I would I would I would uh, I would pursue. So had a lot of conversations with myself. You know, I think the MBA journey started when we graduated and we started working at Facebook together. Um, shout out to my day one Anna here. It's <laughs> awesome. Um, and at that point, it was like, okay, you do this job, and then after two years, you go to grad school, right? It was like this subconscious expectation that we held. But the beauty of what we what we were exposed to at Facebook was we had many folks who had done that journey, and you know we had the privilege of also working in the same positions as people who had done that journey. So, you know, looking at that and understanding different life paths and seeing different examples kind of demystified that perspective that an MBA was necessary to take the steps that I was looking to make, but that also made it harder, right? Uh, because if it's not necessary, then why go back and get it? And I think this is really important. I, I truly believe that when you are pursuing something, you have to accept that it's a want. You have to accept that outside of the justifiable reasons that are, you know, palatably acceptable, like, oh, this will open more doors for me or it will increase my network and blah, 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 blah. Like, sure, those are great. But it also just has to be something you want to do, right? Like, you just want to do it because it's going to make you happy. It's because you want to say you've achieved this, right? I liken it yeah. to like running a marathon, right? Like, you know, you can say running a marathon is great because, oh, I'm super healthy. I'm always running. I have good cardio, but you also want to run a marathon, right? Like you want to be the person say like, I ran a marathon and I did that. And that's okay. It's perfectly fine to have that be a part of your reasoning. So what the MBA became for me when I realized is that I actually, I love school. Like I love school. I think school is great. I, I, I thrive in environments where I get to just explore intellectually for the purpose of doing so. And I understood the direction that I wanted to take with my career, right? I was really focused on social innovation, technology, and social mobility, right? What are the roles that our uh, advancements in technology play in exacerbating uh, you know, inequalities? And how do we mitigate those, right? Mm. So understanding that, I was thinking through what are the best places for me to really just explore that. Um, I did a lot of projects at Facebook where I was creating programming and initiatives that uh, brought to bear this concept that, you know, big tech companies and technology in general should be more accessible and was, you know, bringing students from uh, marginalized communities to Facebook's campus and introducing them to a new world and all these things. And at Correlation One, also playing with this, right, I, I took all the steps before getting to go into grad school to see if I can achieve it what I wanted to do without going, right? Mm -hmm. um, knowing that it's a want, I, I wanted to see what I can do. And eventually, just that, that burning desire to go back just stayed with me. And uh, I, I applied myself at that point. Uh, and I had so much clarity about it because it wasn't rooted in trying to do something for the sake of, of, of someone or something outside of me. It was solely for me. And it was something I wanted to do for myself. And I had so much um fun with the process mm. actually it was stressful but right and overall it was fun it's it's uh everything that you're saying just makes me lights me up because that is what self-discovery is mm -hmm. that is exactly the definition of what self-discovery is when you do something because someone else tells you to do it that's just that's not gonna totally work for you mm -hmm. and then you're just not serving yourself Agreed. you have to get curious you have to explore with yourself to first determine what works best to determine also what you want and then choose to either pursue 
that or not pursue it in your case you are pursuing mm -hmm. this mba because you've you did the discovery process to understand that you did want this and that it will be beneficial in the future yes exactly i i couldn't have said it better um i think sometimes i don't know i feel like we've entered this age where it's not okay to just admit that you like something and want something for the sake of wanting it right I, I feel like we have to in some ways insert a level of greater good in terms of things that we're doing right like oh i'm doing this because i i i solely want to just help other people blah 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 blah, blah. and that's fine but it doesn't have that doesn't have to be mutually exclusive from selfishly wanting something. The, 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 the feeling of wanting to live a altruistic or a healthy life and appear outside all those things, it's, it's still peer pressure in a lot of ways, right? And I, I want people, I want us to have more freedom to choose to do things that we indulge in because we personally just like to do them, as well as indulging in the things that we want to affect positively on the world at the same time. So... In addition to encouraging people to go through this self-discovery journey mm -hmm. to determine whether an MBA is right for them or even other forms of, you know, uh, education, e educational paths, what else would you recommend for those looking at either, you know, business school or even determining whether their major is right for them? Mm -hmm. What advice do you have? Yeah, it's a good question. I would say three things. I would sit down and do a, a uh, have a conversation with yourself right about where you are in your present moment uh i would write down like the things that you enjoy the things that you're interested in in, in learning the things that you don't like um the things that give you energy right and you know the environments that are most conducive for you to be your best self right i think doing that is super important at first because you want to root it in in you Right. At the mm -hmm. end of the day, you always want to root your decisions. The foundation should be you. People can be included. Right. Influence, um, expectations, liability, responsibility. All of that stuff does not happen um, absent of real life. And it's important. But you always have to root things in you first. Repeat those uh, things that you encourage people to list yeah, out. Yeah, for sure. Uh, definitely like list out list out the things you enjoy. Like, number one, what are the things that I enjoy? I enjoy reading about Mesopotamian history, right? Or something like that. Next, list out the things that you're good at, right? What are the things that I'm good at? It doesn't matter if you like it or not, right? That's different. You can be good at something and not like it, but just list out the things that you're good at so you understand that. Then list out, list out the, the, the things that you don't like, right? That drain your energy that, you know, you, you, you don't see yourself doing long term. And then the third, the fourth thing is really about what are the types of environments that are conducive to that, right? Are you somebody who likes to be around people and get a lot of energy from sitting in a room full of people? Or do you prefer to be in a different space? Do you like suburbs or do you like metropolitan areas, right? All of those things are important because when you make a decision like choosing uh, a grad school or even like choosing a new major, it's, it's more than just that one decision, right? Like if I say I wanna study economics, it's more than just studying economics for economics sake. It also sets me on a pathway for what I can pursue in my career or, or what options are also available to me, right? Mm -hmm. Everything is tied, tied in. You can pivot, 
you can always pivot, but when you make a decision, there's the second and third order implications that happen when you do it. Mm -hmm. So if you root it in yourself first, it allows you to pivot more easily because your foundations is core to who you are. I love that. The other thing I want to talk about in terms of education mm -hmm. and, you know, your path before we shift gears to talking about mental health mm. is the importance of mentors because you've publicly, you know, shared about the importance of mentors in your life mm -hmm. and your entire community of Become What You Can't See is about essentially mentorship mm -hmm. and being together and uplifting one another. So in your experience, how did you go about getting mentors? And then what advice do you have for those looking for mentors, whether, you know, for grad school, for college, for post-college? Mm -hmm. Tell us about your experience, because you're also, I have to brag about Rob, he's a great people person. Oh. He's like a great <laughs> networker, which um, is also beneficial when you're looking for a mentor. I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm okay. Anna is being very, very kind, which I appreciate. Um, <laughs> It's a really, this is a really important subject because I think mentorship also, some also gets kind of narrowed in terms of its scope, right? Like we tend to think about a mentor as just somebody in a position that you want to achieve and they help you achieve it. Yes, that, that is a part of what a mentor can do, but I think mentorship is a lot more expansive. For one, uh, mentorship can be someone who is who has who has in an experience or in a position that you want to reach but also somebody who's in the same position as you uh and i think that peer mentorship is something that's really important especially when you know for folks who are first gen when you don't really have standardized access from a familial perspective to people who've done it before um how mentors come to be and how you get mentors uh i think the first place is recognizing within your environment right who who do you who are you drawn to Right. I think school is a great example where everybody has like that favorite professor or that that favorite administrator or somebody who makes their experience easier, that you, you seek out their thoughts and, and, and their, their their opinions. Usually it starts that way where you start to build a recognition for something that you aspire to be. And then the step is for you to then directly if you can ask right and say hey i really enjoy your work listening to you i would i would i would love to have more time with you right and it's intimidating at first but one of the things that people don't tell you is that people love when people value them right they love that you know if you tell somebody your your words mean a lot to me it's going to make them feel good right and it plays on like our natural desire to be wanted so know that you're also doing a person a favor when you ask them, um, you know, to, to, to be your mentor or to, to help out. Love that. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. Can I say one more thing on this? Yes, of uh, course. Just, just, just a few things around mentorship. I think that's really important to know as well is that, like I said, it comes in many forms, right? I think a great example is, in a lot of ways, Anna has also been a, a, a mentor for me, right? Uh, what I love about Anna is I feel is the same way that, about you, Rob. Thank you, right? <laughs> so we're peers, right? We, we are in the same age category kind of same pathway after college but the things that i've learned from anna even though we're both discovering and finding our own mentors in different capacities is that she's been very very consistent about her journey with discovery wellness and improving her 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 personal realm 
right? Uh, I've seen Anna go from, you know, joining running clubs to completing a marathon from, you know, going to wellness classes and workshops to now running her own platform. And these are things that I take with me as someone who's also growing and developing and trying to build, which means to say that mentorship also comes with interaction. It isn't just, it isn't always a uh, standard process of dictation, apply advice, and then see what happens. It can also come in the experience of witnessing someone else do things um, that might be different from what you want to do, but the way that they do them is something that you would want to uh, uh, embody. Totally. There's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's equally important to have peer mentorships. I think it's great to have, you know, those who are ahead of you in life to see and how they can help you with their learnings from when they were in your position. But I think it's also beneficial to join forces with um, those that are in your same, Mm -hmm. you know, same age group, same age cohort and see what they're doing and what you can learn from. And then, you know, you, you offer essentially that, that too. And mentorship maybe is embedded in our friendship, I think for the both of us. So I'm so grateful for that. And another thing that I'm very grateful for is just like the candidness that we have and, you know, talking about well-being Mm -hmm. and specifically mental health. You and I have had our fair share of conversations around mental health. I remember back when we had just started our jobs and we were both like, all right, I think it's time to see that that we see therapists. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) We were in a conference room, but I'm so, so grateful that we were able to open up with each other around that and you've also been very public about Mm. your mental health battles both posting on linkedin and instagram and i admire you for that because i think there's still this stigma around sharing about your mental well-being yeah both on a social level but also on a professional level like posting about it on linkedin and especially i think there's still this stigma for men to share about Mm. their mental health journeys yes so i want to start we're talking about how you've found the courage to open up mm. and how can we encourage other men to do so? Mm. How can I encourage the men in my life to open up? And how can we have more compassion around mental well-being with men? Wow. This is a meaty one. Um, and I'm, 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 I'm happy to be here and, and dialogue on it. One thing I'll say is that, you know, nothing that I, I say is like universal law. Um, these are my experiences, and I, I, I try my best to hold in mind that I also have my own self-limiting beliefs about things. But with that being said, um, this is a very important topic. Right now, loneliness, isolation, depression are on the rise globally. And in particular, their studies have shown that it is more common and more more perverse amongst men right now. And I think there is a, a level of um, understanding about the ways in which how we've constructed masculinity uh, historically plays into how we're building masculinity today. And that, that, that conflict of that construction versus uh, remodeling plays a little bit into this conversation with mental health. As I was growing up, opening up was not a thing. You know, I, I have very vivid memories of, of my dad, like, telling me, like, you know, stop crying, don't cry. Like, 
he would never ask me what's wrong. He would always say, what you crying for? You know what I mean? Like things like that. And my dad has, my dad has even done his own self work, but you know, before then, you know, we weren't in 2023, we were in like 2000. <laughs> um, so I think there's, there's just a construction that as a man, as a self-identifying man, you are to be the kind of stoic bastion of reserve and, and power and strength and calm uh, in a situation. I don't think that does anybody any services because you build up all of this tension from feelings that you haven't been able to express and it blows up and projects in, in different ways. So how did you untangle essentially the, yeah. the conditioning that you grew up with to get to the point where you are now very comfortable sharing your feelings? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say for me, um, the way that I was able to kind of untangle this, and it's a journey, right? It's a journey for everyone, was, you know, I had a, I had a conversations with a lot of women, honestly. Um, my mom, Miss Polito, and being in an environment where it was okay to share feelings as a baseline got me more comfortable with being able to talk about it in general. Now, I'm not saying that you, as a man, you need to talk to women to do this. This is just like, as I was growing up, this has happened. I think there are a lot more places that are more open, um, inclusive of gender, where you can have these conversations. But I think it starts with having a safe place, a brave space to have conversations in general. I think the other place that was really helpful is being surrounded by people around me who were able to speak openly about their mental situations as well. And just see that there is conversations happening with these people men like how because that's also something that i'm curious is like how yeah. can we encourage men to open up with other men how how do we change this because i also think it doesn't it shouldn't fall on the women to encourage men to open up i agree and i did not mean I, no no i, no, no. I know that, that but I, yeah i, I know that that's not what you meant i just wonder like what can men do to encourage each other to open up yeah it's a good it's a good point so i, I would say the the real impetus that really made this like poignant for me was back in the day there was this um documentary that was like the the mass like the mass we live behind or something like that and it tackled this concept of what we tell men all the time to do. And I remember seeing that, and it was the first time that I ever see somebody, seen somebody address that, right? And, you know, it was visual media and that was really helpful. And I think media is really helpful for this as well, right? Like movies like Moonlight, for instance, I think is are great because it exposed uh, uh, on a main scale, uh, just real deep intimacy between men and men of color in particular, right? Which, you know, you know, because a lot of us experience so many things in society, uh, we, we, we fight so hard everything so that we don't be shown as weak. I think having experiences where, you know, you, rec you recognize this happening already makes it easier to do it in places where it doesn't. Places where, for me, where it happens more regularly is like when I'm in my, my group of my friends and stuff like that. You know, we hug each other. We have all these these talks. And, you know, even in like in sporting environments, when you're in a locker room and stuff like that. Right. There are there are already functions in place that allow you to explore more intimacy in men. But we see them as functions. We don't see them as places. Right. So like a locker room, for instance, the function is for you to be there, get changed, blah, blah, blah. But when I was on a football team, we used to joke around all the time. Right. And like be in places where we're pretty vulnerable, you know what I mean? Whether it's physically or whatever. And those environments already demonstrate that we can do this. 
it's just it's just an opportunity to make the mental jump. There was a conversation that I had with my high school friends where, you know, one of us was just going through a tough time with with their parent. And you can just see on his face the level of pain and hurt that he had and he was trying to be, you know, tough and hard and like being like, you know, I'm fine, like blah 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 blah. And we all just said, you know, it's it's okay if you if you feel bad about this, right? You know, I've had moments too. And it, it does take a person to to be brave enough to share, mm-hmm. right? I think with anybody, with men especially, but with anybody, it just takes that one person to say, you know what? I'm actually not feeling that well. You yeah. know what? I'm actually feeling pretty sad right now. And you have that domino effect, right? It's the, it's 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 the same thing with being the first to step up and and do something, you leave a path for others to follow. And, you know, for all the men who are listening or men identifying people who are listening to this podcast, uh, I hope that this gives you uh, just that extra nudge to just be vulnerable. And you can do it in small ways. You can just say, I'm not feeling all right, but I also don't feel like talking about it right now. And, you know, we, we also have to take a step back to and like we, we get fed so much from media and, you know, there's all these tropes and things of that nature. Um, we do live in an age where we are um, interconnected with the Internet. And our lives, our real lives, are as important to us as our digital lives. And I would say that there is so much noise out in the the digital sphere that make it very hard for people to want to be vulnerable, because you know there's there's so much stigma and jokes and ridicule that can happen. So with that being said, I would just say that. You know, when you are choosing to be vulnerable or when you want to be vulnerable, you know, it's it's important to just block out the noise. Right. Because a lot of the times when people are ridiculing or insulting, it's because they are still on their journey of, of finding what you've already found, which is the confidence and and love for yourself to give yourself and yeah, encourage to be to be the person that you are. And just know that those people are just are just trying to figure it out themselves. And the more that you do that, the more uh, others will follow in the same. Thank you, Rob. I thought that was so insightful. And I continue to thank you for you know sharing about your vulnerability online. Yeah. I think that it also comes down to what you said is like representation and seeing others share about their vulnerabilities is very important. So... We're close to wrapping up. Wow. But I'm really, really excited for this uh, rapid fire set of questions. If okay, you're great. If you're up for, for that, yes, you ready? Yes, let's do it. So as you know, theory and practice is all about self-discovery mm-hmm. before self-improvement, because that ultimately leads to personal growth. Mm-hmm. And I want to know from you, what does self-discovery mean? Ah, for me, self-discovery means being open to being surprised by who you are and what you can be. It is it is very easy to want to define yourself, but the beauty of life is that we can continue to build new definitions day by day. So the more excited you are about the, the newness that you can represent um, for you, I think the, the better that the journey becomes at the end of the day. Um, I'm discovering new things every single day. Like, going to California, I might discover that I like California. Who knows? (laughs) I'm excited by that, though. I'm not intimidated by it. I'm excited by it. So stay curious about how you can surprise yourself. 
What's um one habit, ritual, or belief that you have that has changed your life? This James Clear's like Atomic Habits has definitely changed my life. Creating creating habits that affirm the identity that you have is just as important as acknowledging that identity, and that has really changed a lot for me. Totally, me too. And the systems part to like setting systems in place will help you get to your goal. 100%. If you only have a goal without any systems, how are you supposed to to accomplish it? Exactly. Exactly. What's one product or service under $100 USD that has helped you on your self-discovery journey? Headspace. I love Headspace. Just taking a moment to be calm and breathe. Breathing does a lot. I, I underestimated breathing because we do it every day. But when you're intentional about your breath... Have you read um, James Nestor's book? I have not, no. Breathe? Oh, you should read it. Okay. It's, it's good. Anyone interested in the art and the importance and science of breathing? Definitely recommend, but right. continue. Add it to the list. I love that. No, like just being conscious of the fact that we are breathing, for me, I think just... It's a beautiful thing. It's like, oh, I'm alive, right? Um, and just being present. So, yeah, headspace. What's one free app on your phone that you use to enhance your self-discovery journey? Free app on my phone. Uh, my notes app. Uh, I love the notes app on iPhone. Whenever I am just want to get a thought out, I just pull it up and I just type it down and I'm, I, just, I, just, I just have it, you know, and it's free. You can use it as much as you want. Don't need to pay any services. What's one resource, book, podcast, thought leader, uh, mm. like store, whatever it is, you recommend for others on their self-discovery journeys? Uh, Goodbye Things. Uh, Goodbye Things is a book by Fumio Sasaki, a Japanese author. And it is a practical guide to discovering um, minimalism. But it's really more about how do you become more intentional with the things that you do in your in your material life and in your mental life. It's really changed a lot of how I think about things. I remember when you first read that and you recommended it to me. Mm -hmm. It's great. I have to still I, I have to check it out. Check it out. It's a must. It's a must read. So, Rob, where can people find you? Yeah. So you can find me a few places. Uh, you can find me on Instagram underscore no need to rush. I'm no need to rush pretty much all social media. LinkedIn. You can find me at uh, my name. Uh, and you can find me building really cool things at becomewhatyoucantsee.org and becomewhatyoucantsee on all social media platforms. Check it out. Amazing, my friend. Thank you so much. Really, really grateful to, you know, have had the opportunity to go deep into all these topics with you and um, excited for your journey. For those that don't know, Rob also just got engaged. So congratulations. Yes, I'm a whole fiance now. Crazy. And we'll have to do another episode on like, love in your 20s with oh, you yeah and Woo. i have you, a lot to say about that yeah and <laughs> in the conversations that we've had you've been very I, I love the guidance that you have given me so we have to do an, another episode yeah for that. Uh, speaking of that shout out nyla that's my fiance <laughs> uh gotta shout her out but and i just want to say it's been great to be here i i love the platform that you're building this is so amazing and i cannot wait to continue to support the growth of theory and practice thank you so much rob all righty that's it, folks. See ya. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. And if you did, please give us a rating, a follow, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find Theory and Practice on Instagram, on TikTok, as well as our website, theoryandpractice.com. And thanks so much again. We'll see you next week.